Uh, guys, as I said, if you are a guest with us this morning, so glad that you uh, carved out time to visit us this morning, especially on a morning where you lost an hour. That's impressive. I thought we'd have about half of what, we've, what we had out this morning, so it's good to see you. I will say that the setup team had a little less pep than they usually have. This morning, there's a bit more dragon <laughs> going on. Uh, but if you are a guest with us, we, we're walking through a series on the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament, which is a letter written to a group of believers uh, in Rome, most likely, who come from a Jewish background, who come from the, the, the Jewish kind of uh, system of religion, who have found that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that they've grown up to believe and understand of the God of the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. And what the, the author of, of the letter to the Hebrews is doing, he recognizes that they're, they're on the cusp of some major persecution. And as the church is beginning to feel this, many in the church are starting to say, you know what, this is too hard, let's just go back where it was safe. See, in the, in the first century, Rome kind of allowed Judaism to go on, the Jewish religion, where Christianity was starting to get persecuted. So a lot of people who had moved from Judaism to Christianity were saying, you know what, it was a lot safer back then. It's hard to believe, but there was actually a time when Christians would say, you know what, it would be a lot easier if I wasn't a Christian. There was a time in history where that happened. No one's giggling. Okay, sad. Okay, it's still a problem. <laughs> many of us maybe walked in to this morning. Many of us have, have spent time during this week saying, you know what? It would be a lot easier if I didn't have this, this moral compass. It'd be a lot easier if I didn't have this worldview. I could just kind of go along with everything else and not draw attention to myself. That might be an easier way to go about life. And I would say that the author of Hebrews would call out to you and I today and say, Jesus is better than any, anything else you might fall back on. Jesus is greater than any other pursuit you could possibly uh, spend your life in. And unlike all other pursuits, he won't turn on you and eat you alive. If we pursue beauty, it will turn on us and eat us alive. We will, as one, one author said, we will, we will die a thousand deaths every time we look in the mirror as we get older, if we pursue beauty. If we pursue money, It'll turn on us and it will consume us. And the author of the Hebrews, I believe that would be his modern message. There's nothing better. There's nothing greater to fall back on. Uh, I'm going to invite you to stand and we are going to read from Hebrews, uh, the late bit of Hebrews chapter 7, starting at verse 25. The part, what we're going to talk about today actually scans from, from the end of 6 all the way through 7 into 8, but I won't read that entire thing right now, but we're going to kind of be jumping through all of that. It's always nice, I'll tell you, in, when you're reading a, a letter in the New Testament, when the author says, and this is very important. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 15. This is of, of utter importance. Remember the resurrection. And it's always, whenever, if you're one of those people who highlights your Bible, anytime the author says, and this is what I'm saying, or this is of utter importance, you highlight that. And we get a bit of that in this text today. Uh, if you have your Bible, you can turn there. If you want to go to cachurch.info and go under sermons, town center, you can actually follow along with what we're going to be doing. You can add notes and you can email it to yourself if you want to take advantage of that. This is the word of God to us this morning. The reason we stand is out of respect for God's word. Hebrews, starting at chapter 7, verse 25. Therefore, he is able, speaking of Christ, once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on, on their behalf. 
He's the kind of high priest we need because he is holy and blameless, unstained by sin. He's been set apart from sinners and has been given the highest place of honor in heaven. Unlike those other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices every day. They did this for their own sins first and then for the sins of the people. But Jesus did this once for all when he offered himself as the sacrifice for the people's sins. The law appointed high priests who were limited by human weakness. But after the law was given, God appointed his son with an oath. And his son has been made the perfect high priest forever. Here is the main point. We have a high priest who sat down in the place of honor beside the throne of the majestic God in heaven. There he ministers in the heavenly tabernacle, the true place of worship that was built by the Lord and not by human hands. God of grace, we are separated by 2,000 years, by culture, by language, by religion that is, is so foreign to us. And so, God, I pray that as we kind of unpack this today, you would give us a clear understanding of what you would want to say to us and how you would want to use this ancient text to encourage us as we walk through difficulties, where you would want to encourage us and strengthen us as, as the winds of culture, the winds of, of politics, uh, the, the fears that come and go, that we would plant ourselves firmly in the truth of the gospel because there's nothing better to fall back on. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, you guys can take a seat. Yeah, I love how obedient you guys were like going to keep standing until I said that. What do we do? It's very liturgical. Um, if you've ever been early to a movie, my family gets after me because I like to be not just on time. On time for me is like 15, 20 minutes early. It is my love language. My family knows that. When, when I say let's get in the car, some, if someone's in the car before I get there, there's a tear. That's a beautiful thing. If you get to a movie early and you're sitting around, they have this thing called time play that you can get on your phone and play those games with the screen. One of the things they always have is they have this blurred out picture that, that slowly comes into focus, slowly gives you a clear understanding. And, and the, the sooner you hit your button to guess who it is, you, you gain these points, which mean absolutely nothing. Okay? But... Uh, I'm convinced that my app never works because I never, ever win at this. Um, what, the, what the author of Hebrews has been doing is he's been taking all these different things, and while he clarifies them, he's trying to give us a clear, clear, clear picture of how great Jesus is. To take all these old, ancient things and say, okay, okay, Jesus is better, Jesus is better. I just want to give you such a beautiful picture of Jesus so that you, you can't take your eyes off him. And, and in this text, what he's taking kind of, what he's challenging them on is the Old Testament concept of high priest and the sacrificial system, which is, is not super clear to us, possibly, um, but would have been very fresh in their minds. They would have had a very clear understanding of what he was talking about. And we need to remember that the point of this letter is to remind uh, the readers, the hearers, that Jesus is a, a greater choice than anything else they could ever go back to. He's not saying these were bad. He's just saying Jesus is way better. And that if Jesus is who he said he is and did what the apostles said he did, when we are persecuted, running from him makes no sense. You grab on more strongly to that which is eternal. You don't grab on to those things which will soon disappear. 
And the author's been comparing Jesus to all these different things, and now he kind of hones in on this the sacrificial system and the, the high priest. If you want some really light reading tonight, you can read Leviticus 1 to 10, and it'll explain to you the idea of the sacrificial system uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, last week, I talked a little bit about how the, the author of the Hebrews kind of paused on this and goes, I want to tell you about all this deep theological stuff, but I'm afraid you guys aren't ready for it because you, you've kind of forgotten all this other stuff. I would encourage you to, to do a little background work and, and, and study a bit about the sacrificial system because it's all aiming towards Jesus. The point of the sacrificial system was to point out, point out where sin naturally leads us and that we serve a loving God who provides a way. And so in Leviticus, there's this description of God laying out the system that will always remind us that sin is ugly and will always remind us that sin causes a barrier between us and God. But rather than taking the life of a human, which was not unheard of in the day, by the way, they, God provided uh, a system of taking goats and sheep and different animals and, and laying, uh, symbolically laying the sins of humanity or the people of Israel on them and then sacrificing. There was no pita. Nobody was, was upset uh, over it. This was, there, there, weren't, there was no domesticated animals in the way that we think of them unless they were getting them ready to have at a feast at some point. Uh, there's no cute little dog with an Instagram page like some people have. Okay. <laughs> They made me do it. So this is important. The, the purpose of, of sacrifice was not merely to remedy occasional lapses of purity. The Hebrew word for, for offering, the word offering a sacrifice means to bring near. So when a sacrifice was made, we were, the people of God were being brought closer to him. That's the entire point of scripture. The entire plot line of scripture is God getting closer to man. That's the ongoing plot. The system was limited, the author goes on to say, and Paul talks about this in his letters. It was limited by the fact that every priest who, who led the, these ceremonies was a sinner. He had to offer sacrifices for himself. Not only was a sinner, but he also felt the effects of the fall, so priests would die and they needed to get a new priest to take over. He would have to offer, offer a sacrifice for his own sin before he could get to the sins of the people of Israel. And the author of Hebrews is saying, no more. We don't need to worry about that anymore. All of that, in fact, was pointing to Jesus and what he would ultimately take care of on the cross. The reason in John chapter 1, verse 29, that when, when John the Baptist points to Jesus and says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The only reason that makes any sense is because of Leviticus 1 to 10. The only reason that makes any sense is because of the sacrificial system. Now, they wouldn't have all understood what he meant by that, but they, the people around John the Baptist and seeing Jesus would have been, had a lot of questions. <laughs> How is this man... How, how is he similar or, or better to provide a way for us to take away the sins of the world? How is he better than every priest who came before? And that's the very question that the writer of Hebrews is answering in this text. And he does it in a very interesting way. He goes into the Old Testament. He goes into this obscure story that's not talked about much in the Old Testament in Genesis 14, 17 to 20. And he takes that story about an old priest named Melchizedek and he couples it with, with, with one line in Psalm 10 where King David makes a prophetic statement about Melchizedek. 
In, in Genesis 14, Abraham, the father of the Israelite people, first called by God. In, in Genesis 12, he is given promises that he's going to bless all the nations and that an individual, his descendant, is going to bless all of the world. He has just come back from like this amazing battle. He is on top of his game. His nephew Lot had been kidnapped and he goes after him, grabs his men and they go after and they defeat four kings. Okay, so he's just gone from a tribal chief to defeating four kings and he's on the way back and they're probably singing songs together. They've taken all the, all the, the riches from these kings, has all their possessions and as he's returning from this victory, he comes across this mysterious priest. Now, when you and I hear priests, we have all sorts of ideas in our minds. When, when, when people in biblical times heard the word priest, they, they think, one who stands in front of God for me. One who, who stands in front of God for me. And that's important because it explains Abraham's behavior. He doesn't just dismiss uh, Melchizedek. In Genesis 14, uh, verse 17, we have it up there? Yeah. It says, after Abraham returned from his victory over Kedorlaomer, not bad, and all his allies, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and the priest of God most high, brought Abraham some bread and wine. Interesting, bread and wine. Melchizedek blessed Abraham with this blessing. Blessed be Abram my God, by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has defeated your enemies for you. Then Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the goods he had recovered, short and sweet. That was around 2000 BC, we figure. It was another millennium before David wrote his prophetic words, inspired by the Holy Spirit, in Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has taken an oath and will not break his vow. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. It was a prophetic word that had no person to attach itself to. Nobody knew what that statement was about. But as, a, as mysterious as the original king-priest Melchizedek was, there was, there is someone that God has said, there's going to be another one like Melchizedek. There's going to be another one like this priest. But not like the priest that existed during David's time when he wrote this. I'm sure all the Levitical priests at this time are going, what, what, what's this? Not Levitical, not Aaronic priesthood, something new. Or in some ways, something very ancient and something very eternal. Like Melchizedek, the writer of Hebrews is saying, Christ is a priest king of justice and peace. Jesus is a priest king of justice and peace. This Melchizedek, he was, he was king of the city of Salem, it says in verse 1, chapter 7. He was also a priest of God most high. When Abraham was returning home after winning a great battle against the kings, Melchizedek met him and blessed him. The author of Hebrews is saying Jesus is the fulfillment of the, the new kind of Melchizedek that we hear in Psalm 110. Melchizedek was a priest king. And Jesus is the ultimate priest king. Hebrews 7.2, Then Abraham took a tenth of all he had captured in the battle and gave it to Melchizedek. Now, this is interesting. The name Melchizedek means king of justice. King of Salem means king of peace. Never before had there been a priest and a king put together. You were either a priest or you were a king. To have a priest king is something completely different. It means that he, he is in the position, he has the credentials to both lead the people, but also lead the people to God. 
That's an interesting kind of king. That's an interesting kind of priest. This priest king is the king of justice or righteousness, some translations say. And he's the king of Salem, where we get the word or the Hebrew word shalom. And what's very interesting, this is, this is pastor geekness, I'm sorry. What's very interesting is that Salem is the city that would become Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So he's a priest from Jerusalem. Before it's Jerusalem, he's a priest who no one knows where he came from. Before there's a priesthood in Israel. Verse 3 says he has no father and mother recorded by history. So he resembles the son of God in that God, Jesus stepped into time, stepped into history, and then ascended to the father. Some have thought, some, oh, I'm shooting that right off my head. Some scholars have thought, oh, well, this, maybe Melchizedek was an angel. Some have said pre-incarnate Christ, meaning Jesus showing up early. But that's not really what the author is arguing here. And nowhere in Scripture does it make that argument. The point, what he's simply pointing out is the similarities uh, that Jesus has to this ancient priest, what we would call a type, that we can look at a, a story or a person or a theme in the Old Testament and say, there's so many characteristics in that that are true in Christ, and they can be used as a tool to talk more about Jesus. You can take a Jonah being, being in, in the fish, right, being uh, for three days and you know, things like that, right? Jesus does this when he's speaking to Nicodemus and talks about the brass snake and everyone who looked to it was healed. It's a type. The point is, Jesus' priesthood, like Melchizedek's, was based solely on the call of God and not on heredity like the other priesthood was. Jesus and Melchizedek were both appointed as priests of God most high, but not through any system, but through unique relationship with God. So like Melchizedek, Christ has authority and he has significance. Don't pass this by. Imagine this, guys, writing this to the, to the early church. Do not miss the, uh, the authority and the significance of Christ. Because if you recognize it, you would never go back to the old system. And I'll say that to you. We would never go to some of the things we pursue if we understand the authority and the significance of Christ. Abram, Abraham gives him a tenth of all the plunder. And that's not while Abraham was down and out. This wasn't like a manipulative, <laughs> like things are going pretty bad for me, so maybe if I give a tenth, not that we've ever thought that way, but uh, giving a tenth to this priest, and the priest, uh, we don't even know that he asked for it. This priest, hey, this priest didn't have lights to keep on or rent to pay in a theater, but for some reason, Abraham gives him a tenth. And he's, uh, he's at the height of his game right now, but he recognizes that he was in the presence of someone greater than himself. As the author says, it's the greater that blesses the less. And Melchizedek, imagine hearing this as a, as a Hebrew. Abraham was being blessed by this other guy. The guy you've only heard about twice in the Old Testament is greater than Abraham. Christ is like this high priest. And since Abraham is the father of Israel, the first Israelites, the patriarch, the, the one from whom all others came, it's, it's as if Levi, the, the, the people from whom the, the priesthood came from, it's almost like they're paying a tie through Abraham's body, he says in verses 9 to 10. In addition, we might even say 
that these Levites, the ones who collect the tithe, paid a tithe to Melchizedek when their ancestor Abraham paid a tithe to him. For although Levi wasn't born yet, the seed from which he came was in Abraham's body when Melchizedek collected the tithe from him. It's an interesting argument. Levi wasn't around yet. He was still inside Abraham in a way. And he's paying tithes to this priest. So he's greater than the Levitical priesthood. All of Israel, you could argue, submitted to this king priest of peace and righteousness through their predecessor, Abraham. And if it was right and proper for that to have taken place, the author of Hebrews is saying, how much more to Christ? How much more do we give to Christ? All of this is what the author of Hebrews is trying to say. Before there was a nation of Israel, there was a priest. A priest who Abraham recognized as greater than himself and therefore greater than his people. A priest who was a perfect, righteous king. A priest who blesses and whose ministry is not in danger of dying out. And you almost get the idea that that, that faded picture that you see at the movie theater, this faded picture of Christ that he's trying to make more and more clear is coming in more and more. Have you ever watched a movie with somebody? Uh, you've already seen the movie and this great part's coming and you're watching, you're watching them more than the movie and you're like, you, you, you see it? I almost feel like the author of Hebrews is doing that in, in this letter to the Hebrews. He just keeps going like, are you seeing it? Are you seeing how beautiful it is? As you sit in this small persecuted church in Rome with Jewish roots, growing up with the understanding of priests and sacrifices who, who maybe have been thinking, are my sins truly taken care of? Is Jesus truly the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? Or should I invest my life back in this, in this system that seems to have served my people so well? And the author of Hebrews would, would, would not point back and say they were no good, but he would point to Jesus and say, Jesus is so much greater than he would say, that time is done. He would not say it's useless and that we need to come unhinged, as some modern uh, authors have said. It's an important part of the story. If we just read the New Testament, it's like we've ripped a book in half. I'm like, how did they get in this predicament? You need the Old Testament as well. But the writer of Hebrews says, look ahead, look to Jesus. In verse 15, he says, this change has been made very clear since a different priest who is like Melchizedek has appeared. Jesus became a priest, not by meeting physical requirements of belonging to the tribe of Levi, but by the power of a life that cannot be destroyed. And because of that, although Christ is like a Melchizedek, there's ways he's different. Christ's priesthood brings sufficiency and completion. Sufficiency and completion. He's the kind of high priest we need it says in the next verse, in verse 26, he's the kind of pre high priest we need because he is holy and blameless, unstained by sin. He has been set apart from sinners and has been given the highest place of honor in heaven. That symbolism is, is, is rampant in the Old Testament and in the ancient world of a prince taking a seat next to the king because his job is done. It is complete. Listen, the way to God, which was cut off by sin, has been taken care of for good. That was the cry of the early church. Jesus has saved you like nothing else can. And therefore will bring you hope, identity, and joy like nothing else can. 
Peter, uh, sorry, Paul writes about this in Romans 3.21. He says, But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. That no matter who we are, can you please let that sink into your heart? I don't care how you came in. No matter who you are, this is true for all who believe. And it's something we need to revisit every day when we wake up. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, this means, this truth, this fact that Jesus has done this and sits at the side of the Father, this means that everyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old has gone, a new life has begun. Let's live like a new life has begun. Let's not just check it off as if it's just a legal agreement. There's more to it than that. There's more to pie in the sky when you die. There is a new living life to be lived right now. Philippians 3.9, I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith Wait a minute, my faith is in Christ? I'm in Christ? Wait a minute, where's Christ? Seated next to the Father? That means I in Christ am next to the Father? That's some powerful theology. Change the way you live. And there's only one who can do this. Based on his own power, his own authority, his perfect life, making him the perfect king and the perfect priest. Paul, writing to a young pastor named Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, says, there is one God, there is one mediator who can reconcile God to humanity, the man Christ Jesus. You know, I'm reminded each time when I feel like, you know what, I'd love to just let go in this area. I'd love to let go in this area. Trying to walk my faith in this area is so difficult. And I think of Jesus speaking to his disciples and say, are you going to leave me too? Where are we going to go? Only you have the words of life. Guys, only Christ has the words of life. Everything else likes to promise it. Why would you go back to religion and, and systems and calculations of your sin, of, of keeping count of, of guilt and shame? Why would you willingly distance yourself? And hey, why would you try to be a king? <laughs> why would we try to be king? He's such a better king. Such a better king. Such a great, better mediator. Christ has paid it all in all sufficiency for you and I. There's nothing, no sin that he has left that he, that he did not take care of on the cross should we put our faith in him. What an, an incredible invitation to come into the presence of God. There's a story of an evangelical pastor who was ministering in France and every day he would walk with a French priest who was on his way to the local parish. And one day the priest questions him and he said, how come you don't pray to the saints? He said, he goes, well, he goes, and before the evangelical pastor could answer, the, the French priest said, listen, if you were going to the White House and you had a friend in the ministry of health or you had a friend in the White House, wouldn't you go to that friend and say, hey, can you get me in to see the president? And the, the pastor said, ah, he said, but if I wake up in the, in the White House because my dad is the president, I don't walk outside of the White House and try to see if I can get somebody to get me in to see the president. That's my dad. 
There's a wonderful picture, I don't, I don't have it, I just kind of thought of it now, with uh, JFK when his son was, it was in the Oval Office and he was just playing around the desk and playing hide-and-seek and things like that. It's quite a famous picture from Time Magazine or Life Magazine uh, back in the day. But I just get that image of us being welcomed into the presence of God and he's just like, just be yourself, you're welcome here. You're welcome here. But unlike that picture where JFK was busy with some documents on his desk and, and, his, and his son was underneath the desk, um, God, we have God's attention. We have God's ear. He's listening. See, our perfect king, priest, righteous prince of peace escorts us into our father's throne room. He has the power, unlike any other high priest or saint, to not only bring us into the room, but to proclaim that we, are, we now have the right to be called children of the living God. We aren't just guests. It's where we belong. And his attention is on us. I you are his favorite topic of conversation. You have his undivided attention. When I pray, and, and maybe this, some of you are, are used to this, but when I pray, I have a hard time concentrating. I mean, I have, I have oh, that's good. I have, I have patterns that I go through sometimes, sometimes ones that I'm cognitive of, and then sometimes I just kind of get into a pattern. I pray for this church. Pray for some of you as, as individuals and what you're going through. I pray for my family. I pray for my kids. Sometimes I go away for a couple days to pray and plan. If you've ever gone away for a prayer retreat, my experience is the monkeys are moving around in my brain for almost two full days, and then about a half an hour before I have to go home, everything's clear. And then I got nothing left. And many of you might have that experience when you go into a time of prayer. You've got your list of prayer, and it, we maybe start prayer like this. I'm ready to pray for those in need of your sovereign grace and mercy. And then we go like this. Squirrel. <laughs> Why? Because we have physical and spiritual and mental limitations. Also, I don't know fully what's going on in people's hearts. I, I can pray for people for what I know and what they've told me, but our hearts are intricate. My heart is intricate. The people I'm praying for are intricate. I don't even know exactly what their needs are. I don't know what my own, my own needs are. My own wife's needs, my own kids, what they're struggling with. I'm only human. Thank God there is one who intercedes for us, one who consistently knows our needs and who is ultimately the solution to all of them who is speaking on our behalf. And that's the last thing I would say is Christ's priesthood. It brings total salvation. Total salvation. There were many priests under the old system, he says in verse 23. There were many priests under the old system, for death prevented them from remaining in office. But because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. Therefore, he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. In verse 25, where it says he's able once and forever to save, or in some versions it might say save to the utmost, it means complete, absolute, total, eternal salvation. You can't add to it. You, you, you weren't more saved yesterday because you fed the poor. And if you took a selfie of it, that's even worse. But you, you're, not, you're not less today than because you did something good. That's not the way the gospel works. We are fully saved. Ephesians 2, 8, Paul says, God saved you by his grace when you believed and you can't take credit for it. That's actually a really good thing. 
Because then you, you're also not on the, on the flip side of that coin. When you mess up, it doesn't disappear. It's a gift from God. And here's the thing. And this is important in our ongoing day-to-day of Christian life. Salvation is not in the future. It's now. It is not something that we're waiting on. That's the kind of Christianity that, that hunkers down and gets scared, so scared of the political um, environment, the, the cultural environment, the coronavirus, where we run scared and the, and the sky is falling. I'm not saying be unwise, but I'm saying our God is sovereign. The language here in verse 25 is the same as that. It's, the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved, being saved continually, know it is the very power of God. A continual state of being saved day-to-day salvation, an ongoing salvation, an ongoing sustenance. A Catholic priest, theologian, Raymond Brown, said it this way. He said, he saves not only in the moment of initial commitment, but day by day and moment by moment. Ought to cling to him that way. What would it look like if day by day we're going, you are my salvation. (laughs) You are my sustenance. I'm not going to run after that other junk. He's so unlike me as an intercessor for you. (laughs) He's such a better intercessor. He's holy, blameless, unstained by sin, devoted to make intercession for us. And this is the best part. And I know it's mysterious. I know it's odd to unpack what it means that that Christ is next to the Father and and how the Trinity is working itself out here. And the good thing is I don't have to explain that because that's not the point of the text. The point is this. Your greatest fan is speaking into God's ear. He He is speaking you up in God's ear. Romans 8, 34. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Nothing else is getting in God's ear. Just Jesus continually pleading on our behalf. He writes also earlier in that same chapter, and the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. That is heartfelt, gut-wrenching prayers for us. And the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying. For the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. Wow, what does that mean? Seriously, I'm asking you because it's hard. I don't fully know. (laughs) But I can tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean the Holy Spirit is next to God and going and listening to our prayers and our prayers are so lame that the Holy Spirit is going, I know that was a stupid prayer. This is what Brad meant to say. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean that God's so used to Hebrew that he needs a translation. That's not what's going on. The truth that you and I are meant to take from this is this. The spirit of God, which lives in every believer, and therefore knows you more than you know yourself, and the person of Christ who loves you more deeply than you could possibly fully know are the ones who have God's ear and they are talking you up. The love of Christ for you and I displayed at the cross is the continual topic of conversation in the throne room of God. You are loved. 
No less today than yesterday when you had a really good spiritual day. No more today because you came to church. You gained a few points with me, but... The love that the triune God has for you since time untold is the topic of conversation because of our great high priest, our great mediator, our great king. Praise God. He is a better king for you and I than we could ever be. A prince of peace who offers complete salvation. There's nowhere in your life you're hiding that he, his grace doesn't reach. And he's bringing us into the presence of God the Father saying, you belong here. You are not a guest. This is your home. God, I, I, I would plead with you guys. <laughs> this is such a great message for our time. What a great sound. This is such a great message for our time. When we, when we play out our religious and philosophical um, convictions online, and we, we see people who have been leaders in the church say, I'm out. It's getting hard. There's, there's difficulty. What a great message for us today to say, what, where are you going to go? There, no one else has the words of life. No one else will bring you into the presence of God Almighty and say, you are my child. So what is it? What's your, what's your pursuit been this week? What has caused Jesus to be pushed off the center so that something else can take center place? I'll tell you, it'll shift your whole life off. My encouragement for you this morning as we go into worship to close things off this morning is to take a minute or two and allow the Spirit of God who is always comforting, who is always kind, who is always gentle to point out where you have had your hand clasped and said, you can reign up here, but leave the details to me. And allow him to point those things out. And hey, let's have the courage to trust our king and priest who burst through sin and death for our sakes, who stands pleading for us at the ear of God the Father. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray and let's respond in worship. God of grace. As Paul writes, your love is so deep, it is so wide, it is so high, it is impossible for us to completely grasp the, the, the depth of it, the immensity of it. But God, I would pray today for those of us who, who've walked in here, and, and truly, truth be told, spiritually, there are so many things attached to our legs, our arms that are pulling us back. Maybe even trying to keep us to come to, to Christian community this morning because there's such a spiritual animosity. We can't even pinpoint it sometimes. God, I, I pray through your spirit you would do a work in us. And sometimes for some of us, God, that, that'll mean so much untangling. It'll be surgical in the way that you need to work with us. But point out those things we need to let go of. Point out those things that would cause us to move you to the margins rather than to the center of our lives some of us are paying for that day by day refusing to change being stubborn God please speak to us this morning lift our eyes towards you do a work in us 
I pray. Help us to see more and more this morning throughout this week that there is nothing greater we can fall back on than our great high priest who pleads for us in the throne room of the living God. Amen.